life is an emotional endurance test. So if we're better in a higher capacity from an emotional perspective, then our decision-making is better and our ability to handle adversity doesn't all of a sudden knock us down and put us in a fetal position. And so we're able to bounce back much, much more quickly. Welcome to the Leading Edge Podcast, your source of insightful and inspirational conversations to help you and your program achieve more. I'm Brian Spielman from LeadingEdge.online. Today, we're excited to be talking with Heather Macy, head basketball coach at Greensboro College, author and founder of Two Feet In Coaching. Well, to start off, looking back at the beginning of your career as a coach, I find generally that there's usually like a mentor story or a kind of moment where whether it's an individual or just a moment where it kind of clicks. And as you transition generally from a player to a coach or a leader, you say this path is for me. I'm kind of curious from what I've read about you, you know, you got into coaching pretty young. Did you know right away that this was kind of your path to where you are now as an accomplished, you know, coach, speaker, uh, author now as well in, in leadership and coaching? So 22 years ago, I graduated from Greensboro College. And could I've ever dreamed of being back here coaching? I, I don't know that I, that I could have written a better story than this, but the process for me, the basketball has always been my first love. And I knew that after my playing career ended that I wanted to stay around the game. And I think coaching becomes a natural progression for players. And so I got into coaching and had no idea what I was doing. And the the best thing that I learned how to do was I learned how to recruit and I learned how to recruit really, really early. And that was how I was able to break in uh, to the division one assistant recruiting coordinator scenario. It took me a decade to become a division one head coach. And there was a lot of sacrifice along the way to accomplish that goal. Um, Very proud of my time and the things that I did during my coaching career at the division one level, but I'll be quite honest, I'm in such a place of alignment that now I understand that coaching just isn't about winning. Brian, my number one focus was winning. And now my focus is, it's still important to me to win. So let me back up. That's still really important, but I understand that the larger footprint that I'm leaving is the one, two, three, or four to five years that I get to spend with these kids? And can I leave lasting impacts on them for the rest of their life? That's huge. And we we hear more and more coaches talking that way. We're winning is, of course, part of the equation. But more and more we hear it as almost a byproduct, you know, necessary byproduct of doing it the right way. Uh, Specific to that whole balance i think there's a survivorship bias where like people don't know about the 10 years of grind of you to get to a d1 level i'm curious as you were working your way up the ladder to being a d1 coach how did you balance the idea of making sure that your impact on your players was your priority over simply just winning i think that's hard it's the right thing to prioritize it that way but it doesn't make it easy as you're trying to work your way up and and i'm wondering if you've reflected on that at all now that you know what you do and and what advice you might give to younger coaches or how you might've done it differently. So winning is the oil or it's the lubrication. And so regardless of what level, you know, from, from high school, you know, all the way up to the pros, you have to win because that is what goes, Hey, this person knows what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. It creates where you have a voice that's louder so that you can help more people. The difference younger self, current day is I was still saying the same thing, like impacting helping kiddos. The difference is I was just saying it because that's what we should say as coaches. But in my heart and in the alignment, 
What was first was winning. And what was first was the end result, not the process to which to get there. And so now the two books that I've written, both books are talking about the things that I wish someone would have told me when I was 26 years old. And no one told me. Now, listen, I, I will go back and say, someone probably did tell me, but I was so hard-headed and thought I knew it all. I, I wasn't open to listening to any of that. But that's why I write these books. That's why I go on these speaking tours. That's why I go and work inside athletic departments to help younger coaches. I became a head coach at 26 years old and I made every mistake in the book. And I think what differentiates me from other speakers and other writers is I talk way more about my failures than I do about the success because I think that's what helps people learn and learn quickly. Absolutely. That vulnerability is key for that relatability. You're in such a unique position to have experienced success, but have that solid perspective to be able to, to look back with vulnerability and then want to share. And so as you are going around and speaking and working with athletic departments across the country with younger coaches, I'm always interested to hear folks who are out there and giving back. What are you seeing as trends as what younger, newer coaches are struggling with? What are the opportunities that face that newer coach as you're seeing them across the country? So it's a lot easier to cut corners now and to take the easy route of the video is already cut for you. It's already clipped for you. The kid, you can find them on YouTube now. And so I don't think that that helps produce young coaches that have a great work ethic or have very much attention to detail because it's just this there, the film exchange process, finding recruits back then you could really find a recruit. There's really no secret at this point as far as breaking down the film. It's already pre-done for the young assistant coaches. It's sitting in front of you uh, in the recruiting perspective. And so in my experience, this has uh, created undisciplined coaches. And so you're working to have your team be very disciplined and um, attention to detail because we know that that's how you win. There's something to be said about watching a flow of a game because you need to learn how to coach. You need to learn how to scout. And to do that, you need to watch the flow of the game. Like, does that coach call a timeout after two fouls? Do they call it after three? Well, you can't see that in clipped video. You need to watch and take notes. And I think it is also what better prepares an assistant to become a head coach because really, really good head coaches can coach within the flow of the basketball game. Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. It's a huge call out. Uh, if you're becoming a theoretical practitioner and you're, you know, there's experience and expertise gained, but if it's not accessible, like in that flow, then you're really not training for the right way as a coach to implement your knowledge that you may or may not be, be gaining. That's, that's a really interesting one. Earlier, you said you learned how to recruit. And I think that's really interesting. It applies not just to sports, but any program. The idea of branding and marketing your program gets kind of thrown around a lot, but I think folks mean kind of telling the story of your program or how your program is perceived by others. So with that in mind, how do you approach uh, the branding and marketing of your, of your program or, or the energy around your program? And what did you learn about what good recruiting looks like um, in representing your program early on? I think you got to get off the front porch and you need to get out there. That's first and see it with your own eyes. Talk to the people, listen with your own ears so that you can then make a judgment call. And sometimes those judgment calls is not the ranking. The judgment call isn't who else is offered, who else is recruiting. I learned right away 
to trust my gut. If I think she's good, it doesn't matter who else does or does not. And then right away, find the decision maker. Who's pulling the trigger? Who's saying yes? Who's making the plays? And then I feel like from my perspective of my vulnerability, when I'm sitting down and I'm talking to whether it's the coach or the athlete or the parent, is being able to say, I'm perfectly imperfect. So are you. And we're not looking to have perfection. What we're looking for is an honest relationship where we can tell each other the truth. And so I tell everybody the truth in recruiting. I'm going to coach you really, really hard. You're going to be in great shape. That's an element of what we do. And then your kid is going to come out of here with the habits to go be successful and a strong female leader in whatever industry she chooses. That's awesome. In terms of um, being upfront in that way, in those early conversations, one-on-one, how do you talk about the value of the program? How are you painting the picture of a program to an individual who you're trying to get on board and get excited about joining? Well, at GC, it's probably the best recruiting job I've ever done because I believe in it so much because I was a student athlete here. And so I walked the same halls and I lived in the same dorm. And so as I'm sharing my story with our recruits and their families, I'm able to just give a a different perspective on what their experience is going to be like. And then our whole thing from a branding perspective is grow it GC. And so we want to grow not just academically and athletically, but emotionally and spiritually. The branding I'm looking for is, can I get into a room? Can I get you on the telephone? And can I tell you how I can see you growing at GC? And so my belief in how successful that they can be I think they feel that. And I think probably all of us in this world just want people around them that go, man, that person really believes in me, even on days that maybe I don't believe in myself. I love that you call that out because I think branding gets thrown around a lot and people think like brand design or a logo versus I think of it as like you mentioned, it's alignment of vision and values all the way through top to bottom. A question about leadership that we love to ask is what does a good leader look like? What does successful leadership mean? Leadership is ownership in my mind. And so when you start talking about the leader taking ownership, that to me is accountability, that's responsibility and looking inward first. We're all going to make mistakes. We're going to make a mistake in coaching. We're going to make a mistake in business. The rule for me is just make new mistakes. And so if the leaders can continue to make new mistakes and then implore the people who follow them, whether that be players or that's an industry is go make new mistakes. Cause the worst thing ever is when everyone around you is afraid to fail, we're getting nothing done. And we're also not going to break barriers. And we are definitely not going to do things that have never been done before when fear is leading the way. I'm a big proponent of leadership, you know, from non-leadership positions, you know, leadership is a behavior, not a role kind of stuff. And so I think your definition is beautiful in that, it's open to everyone. It's of course true of, you know, whoever is actually, you know, on paper, the leader, captain, coach, AD, teacher, but also everyone can use that definition. And you start to get people's kind of light bulbs turning on across, whether you're 10th down the death chart or first in line or wherever. Uh, and I, well, that's it's know, so accessible. That's situational leadership too. I believe everybody's a recruiter. So, and everybody has situational leadership. So it could be the the dinner in the cafeteria with a teammate. And then the same dinner in that cafeteria, everyone is recruiting for or against our program. So maybe all of a sudden, like the folks that work in the cafeteria are now at our game because you were a recruiter in that moment. And 
So if you're empowering people to have situational leadership and to everybody be a recruiter, you know, from a marketing perspective, it's kind of genius because you have everyone working. And so the synergy moving in the a forward direction is there. That's I love the way the the energy around everyone being a recruiter is there where, you know, we've heard in the past for, you know, be a steward of the program, but the recruiter has has a pull to it. Well, and that's a good transition too to um to the next kind of topic, peak performance. We think of it as like what are you doing to get the best out of either yourself or others? You've mentioned a couple of really great things already, but wh- where does your mind go when we talk about you, what are you intentionally putting out to your program to help everyone be at their best? So I think we've got the secret sauce. Um, in 2016, I was certified in emotional intelligence. So I'm one of only 300 EQ coaches in the country and we work it every single day. And for me, that has um, changed what our program's capacity is. That's really the, the word that we use. It's, it's not potential. It's not necessarily, it is their day-to-day habits, but we use the word capacity. And are you at capacity today? And typically when people are not at capacity, they're dehydrated, they haven't gotten enough sleep, that's how you're under capacity. When you're at capacity every single day, you're able to handle adverse situations better because life is an emotional endurance test. So if we're better in a higher capacity from an emotional perspective, then our decision-making is better and our ability to handle adversity doesn't all of a sudden knock us down and put us in the fetal position. And so we're able to bounce back much, much more quickly. That's great. I love that. I'm going to definitely try to steal that and use it as much as possible because potential always kind of feels like a ceiling, right? Like a, like a limiting kind of word where capacity is, it's like, it feels like optimal. Am I, am I in my optimal band or, or not? You know, whereas potential is always a little bit, it feels well, a little let, condemning, let me, I guess, right? Let me share a little bit about capacity because some of us don't really know what our capacity may be. So when I was a division one coach through stress, terrible habits, I really knew my career was going to get shortened because I physically felt awful every day. So if you physically finish practice and your hips and knees and ankles are bothering you every single day, it doesn't really enhance your mood and your positivity. So this team helped me put this, put this in play. I started healing from the inside out because I had over a decade of abuse to my body to heal. And so it was from an inside out perspective. There was nothing, there wasn't like something vain about this experience. It wasn't so I looked better in my clothes or my swimsuit. This was literally like, I want to heal inside out. So as I go through this journey, I feel like I added 10 years to my life. Well, within that, our team, we were 25 and two a year ago, won a regular season championship, And we were undefeated for 70 consecutive days. And that endurance that I'm talking about, it it wasn't all me, but my energy level, me staying positive, me being able to continue to pour into them every single day. There's zero question that when I was at my capacity, I'm a better, I'm better coach. Now that I clearly understand what capacity is, I know when I'm shortchanging the people in my life that I love the most. Capacity means that I am at my best just waking up on my average day. And then you start to get into the zone. This concept of capacity can sustain your longevity in this industry. 
I think it does take a pretty heaping dose of vulnerability to say, okay, I've made some, you know, so, um, unconscious decisions and now I need to just pull it back and I want to remember what it feels like to feel great again. I think coaches also, and I'm thinking the ADs and different folks who I've shadowed, I mean, they're just so busy. It's so easy to just next thing, next thing, next thing, forget breakfast or whatever, not slow down enough to take care of, of your capacity, right? I think it's proper planning. I believe that elite performers leave nothing to chance ever. And so if that means you've got a refrigerator stocked in your office, that's what that means. If that means that you pack the night before, that's what that means. But I know for sure that when I make bad food choices, it's because something that I couldn't grab wasn't right there available to me. You know, we believe that what's in you is going to come out. And we know that verbally, right? But what I learned is it's also mentally. So the same way we're fueling our bodies, you're fueling your brain with the same stuff. That's why we want to be so aware of what we put in there because our neuropathways, we can recruit better, more mm. advanced. And so our thoughts are going to be different. And so you want to talk about like your mindset and your ability to sustain through adversity or your ability to have tough conversations when your brain is healthier. Like right now, I just like I have so much more courage in my life than I've ever, ever had. And a lot of it is just the way that I'm thinking. Mm. I like that. That's great. Well, uh, well. So then, moving on for the the third of the the core leading edge categories. This one's program building, and, and a lot of what we've talked about is completely ap applicable. But what do you think is the difference between someone who is a program builder who is trying to build sustained impact in something that will will kind of last? Um, what things come to mind for you? So, a program builder, in my definition, would be someone who knows themselves. So you know yourself en enough to know. What, what are your core values? What are your standards? And when you know yourself, then you can figure out a way to build a program, but a sustainable program. And so what we have inside our program and what we have inside the company, we call it a blueprint. And the blueprint is like the people we want to involve ourselves with. We want to be really particular with who we have involved in it. And so that's where this blueprint comes in line. It needs to be, that needs to check those boxes. And then we want to make sure that we understand what are our core values? Like what is important? And are we being true to those core values every day? And then what's the standard? And see, the other great thing about having a blueprint, having it written down where you can see it, is because it's something you can tangibly hand to someone before they join your organization, where you can say, I want you to read it on paper and then take it home with you. Do you fit these things? Because if you don't, don't be a part of what we're doing because initially, yes. Do, do we memorize these a passion statement and affirmations? Yes, we memorize them. But what we do is we go phase two is we go to the application phase, meaning we have situations that occur and we point back to the blueprint. You see, this is, this is one of our five affirmations. I will hold you accountable. You see what happened there? I held you accountable. It fits into this blueprint or this is why I must confront anything that is against our culture. I must confront it. Here's why it says this in the blueprint. So it's really, it gives us something to point to just like a process or standards in, in an organization. We also recruit to it. So we don't adjust who we have in our program to switch our blueprint around. Everyone in our program have the same values or conceptually desire to live by these same standards. I agree completely that the of the 
the kind of program building or, or just kind of coaching gig, I think that that lasting kind of blueprint or foundation or, or spine being there is a, is a key component of, of if it's going to be growing in a sustainable way or, or not. And, and like you say, like it's one, two, three, four or five, and it can manifest in a number of different ways. But if you're ever feeling lost, you go right back and say, are we infusing this? Are we charging our practice in these ways? And if we're not, then it's pretty clear we either need to change or or not do it anymore. <laughs> right? Like, so I'm, I'm curious then as you're going around the country and talking to people and sharing this value of having a blueprint to really becoming a program builder and, and the, the health of your organization and, and keeping everything aligned, I think it can feel intimidating, right? So what do you say to that coach who's like, well, you know, I know things that are important to me, but what if I'm wrong? Or I don't want to send us down the wrong path. I mean, how do you kind of help people through that that phase of, I guess maybe it's just being gun shy to write it down for the first time, but but do you run into that at all? And how do you address that? I, I think as coaches, even administrators get into such a hurry that they don't sit down and take the time to do the plan, right? They just see what that end result is. I have a concept that I give them. It's a great illustration. I think helps them see why this is so important. It's called straightening the string. So here's you and over here is where you want to be. So we want to get there as quick and as fast as we possibly can. But what happens in the life is something goes a detour. So we loop over here. It's a distraction. Maybe it's a distraction. Maybe it's an adversity. Maybe you made a mistake. The key is how long are they in that loop? See, some people can go over to that loop and be there five years. So the really, really good ones make the error adjusted really quickly, get back into the straight line of the string. There's going to be another loop and it loops and maybe it's a little bit wider. But the key is, is if you've got a plan, then work your plan. And you have to have a vision to create a plan. You have a system, you recruit toward the system and you recruit players that fit the system. And so then it's a process and then they get better. I think that's the key when I explain to our coaches the importance of, yes, we want to win that championship, but but what's your differentiation to get there? What strategies can you employ? What weaknesses do you already know that's part of your university or part of your corporation that we're going to have to overcome? Be honest about it and then come up with a solid plan. And what is that loop contingency plan? The string and loop is, again, another great visual. So many of your points and insights are so visual that it's it's helping, and I love it. That's a great one. You mentioned corporate in there, and I want to get back to you outside of hoops and working with leaders in, in your book and that great work. What do you see is kind of different as you're talking to, you know, say a coach or an athletic department versus maybe like a corporate or speaking in front of corporate clients? I'm just kind of curious how, how these ideas stand up to outside of athletics, you know? So interestingly enough, I think corporate America really enjoys the verbiage I use and as a coach would use because they want those same things that we teach every day, discipline and accountability and teamwork. And so I don't shift really a lot of what I do when I'm in a corporate environment relative to a athletic department because I coach just like I do with our young people. I coach the one person. So too many times, and early in my career, I did too, it was I'm Coach Macy, then I'm Heather, and then I'm Mace when I'm hanging out with my friends, and there's these versions of me. And so what I do is I go, there's one brain, there's one of us, and that's who I coach every day. And so when I'm talking to, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs and 
or I'm, I'm talking to an athletic department or athletic director or head coach right away. I'm going, no, we, we've got to talk about not just what happens at work. We need to talk about what happens prior to you arriving. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about what happens on your ride home. Now, now what are our strategies once you get into the house? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately we want to win and win and win and win. And the only way to truly continue to win is win at home, win at work, win in your activities, win in your social life. But you can't win in all those areas until you learn who you inside and can win here first. And so making sure that I'm teaching from a holistic perspective mm. is really, really important to me. That's huge. And it's very refreshing, just like everything you shared today. I appreciate that. And it's funny, the corporate world is, is enamored with athletic analogies, military analogies as well, but then they kind of overlook, similar like you mentioned with the younger coaches of cutting the clip out, you know, like, yeah, I want to use some of those words too, but it's like, yeah, but for those things to work, there's a whole system and a whole background in this this self-knowledge that has to be there. Otherwise, you're just saying words that really have no meaning. That's that's really great. So final question, with with everything, you've touched on this a bit, but I'm, I'm curious to ask it more specifically. With your path from player to coach and now sharing everything that you've learned across outside of sport with other leaders, I mean, where are you kind of going with all this? You know, what what is it's this is kind of the, like what keeps what keeps you popping out of bed because i can tell that you're energized you talked a lot about your personal performance and, and that but i mean what's kind of the end game for you why, why do you keep keep going on down this path honestly it's like how many people can i help and then how many people can i help relative to teaching them this content so that they can go help so i want to be a multiplier and so I am selective with who I work with. I, ha- I have one-on-one professional clients. I have head coaches. I have athletic directors. I have in corporate America. And I have youth clients where I work with their entire family. And then I do college teams. I want to pour into them. And then I want them to be able to take and be full and be able to pour into other people. So that's where my passion lies. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm gaining some traction and, and making new mistakes every single day and ready to uh, finish this final 20 years in coaching as the best 20 years of coaching. Coach Heather Macy, thank you so much again for being on the podcast today. Listeners, if you're interested in following up with Coach Macy, you can find her at www.go2feetin.com. That's G-O, the number two, F-E-E-T-I-N.com, go2feetin.com. Her social media handle is at two feet in coaching, and that's at the number two F E E T I N C O A C H I N G. And you can reach her by email at heather.macy at greensboro.edu. Also, make sure to check out her books, Two Feet Forward and Believe, Live, and Think Two Feet In, available on Amazon. That's it for another episode of the Leading Edge podcast. Till next time, head over to leadingedge.online where you'll find more content and conversations to help you build a more successful program. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay sharp.